Are you ready for good talk? And hello there, Peter Mansbridge in Toronto. Um, and Chantel and Bruce are with us, as they always are. And we've got lots to talk about today. It's interesting, we've been discussing, there, there has not been sort of one overwhelming driving issue on this week to discuss, but there are a lot of, I guess, uh, you know, littler ones that are of interest and are important to a degree. And so we're going to try and, you know, cover the whole landscape uh, on this program today and of all these issues. So that will mean that we probably won't delve into any one in length, as we usually do, uh, but we will try to way to sell the show. <laughs> We're offering you a salad this week. It's a uh, salad. Lots of ingredients. It's not nourishing, but it's going to be yeah. uh, diverse. It's going to be diverse, and there's bound to be at least one or two of the multitude of issues that we're going to discuss that will be of interest to you. And I know we'll, we're going to start with this one, and the, the reason we're going to start with it is a couple of weeks ago I threw out a question to the, the Bridge listener audience as to if, if there was one thing you'd change about Canadian politics, what would it be? And there were, there were dozens and dozens, more than 100 different answers came in. There was, it was great. It was a really good uh, a diverse selection of answers on that. But the the one that garnered the most answers was the issue still of election reform. We all remember in 2015, that's what Trudeau sold as part of the formation of his majority government, is that he would deal with election reform. Well, it's turned out he didn't, and he reversed his position on that. Well, in the last uh, week or two, it appears that the the NDP are going to move forward on some degree of election reform, at least in terms of proposing something uh, for Parliament to discuss and debate. Uh, how seriously should proponents of election reform take the initiative on the part of the NDP, Chantel? Um, not too seriously. Uh, I mean, it's interesting, and it's interesting for people who, who, who believe that at some point Canada will get there, that the NDP is bringing in a, a motion uh, calling on the government to set up a citizens' assembly to discuss electoral or voting models for Canada or alternative voting models. The first reason uh, why I say no, I I don't know that it will pass or not. That's the first question. I don't believe that very many conservatives will vote for it. Um, and I don't know how many liberals will actually vote for it. So it's really hard to, to predict the math on, on that result. But the other thing is uh, it doesn't compel the government to do anything. It will It would at best give you a sense of whether there are um, there is a sizable contingent of liberal MPs who feel uh, regrets over not having uh, fulfilled that commitment back in 2015, 2016, 2017. The other reason is calendar. It even if all this. A massive vote for it. The liberals rally to it. There is a citizen's assembly in place. We will not be changing the voting system in this country between now and the next federal election, nor should we, uh, in the sense that the optics on this at this point would be that uh, the liberals and the NDP uh, and to a degree the Bloc are all ganging up to try to steal the majority government from the Conservatives. And the last thing you want, if you're going to proceed with a major change in your voting system, is for the timing to make it look suspiciously partisan, as it would. And finally, I, I'm not totally convinced that the Citizens' Assembly, as interesting as it would be for the discussion, would necessarily come up with a result that reflects um, the will or the inclination of a majority of Canadian voters, i.e., I don't think you could do that without having a national referendum on it. And in that national referendum, before you went for it, you would have to set up rules that say, um, if all of the prairies vote against it, it's dead, even if a majority votes for it. Uh, if Quebec or Ontario votes against it, it's dead. So it's easy to say, let's have this, and it's going to work out fine. But in smaller venues, i.e. provinces, every province that has gone whatever route to electoral reform has ended up, in the end, 
uh, in the dead end and is still using the uh, first past the post system. Bruce, you're, sh- you're nodding yeah, your I- head there. <laughs> as you often well, do, I- as you often do when Chantel says what she says. Yeah, well, that's because no. when he doesn't agree, he doesn't want to show his cards before he puts them on the table for fear <laughs> I will try to preempt them. Now, look, uh, Peter, uh, Chantal's dead wrong about this. And let me explain why. No, I don't, have you ever heard me say that? No, because it doesn't really happen. Um, she's right about this. I think uh, for me, the reasons are several uh, as well. I think, first of all, there's no time between now and the next election to do it in anything other than a way that would look extraordinarily uh, manipulative and and uh, would uh, undoubtedly backfire uh, on the government if it tried to do that. So I, I don't think it has in the intent to do that. I think it basically will allow the NDP to continue the conversation however they wish when it comes to electoral reform. But they'll understand that there's very little that they can do to change the system now. Uh, I think the second reason is that of all of the um, thoughts that liberal uh, ministers can have about why they're 10, 12, or 15 points behind in the polls right now, um, breaking their promise on electoral reform might be something that they regret, but they won't see it as having been one of those things that uh, has put them in this situation, and and, and it isn't. Um, and finally, I think that there is, uh, there's always been a certain amount of frustration with first past the post, um, and that's logical. Um, it is a system that produces, uh, can produce um, a lot of situations where more people vote against the person who wins in a riding than votes for that person. Um, but the level of frustration usually uh, has to be a little bit higher than it is right now with the expected outcome before you really get momentum around this idea. Right now, you've got a situation where uh, I think a little bit unexpectedly, you know, people are probably expecting the conservatives to win the election. And what's unexpected is that, you know, you might have thought three or four years ago, if Pierre Polyev was the leader of the conservative party, uh, that progressive voters would be uh, almost horrified at that fact. But the public opinion doesn't really look like that right now. And why is that the case? I think in part it's because he's been um, presenting himself in a way that doesn't inflame those kinds of passions, that that sense of horror at the prospect of him as prime minister. Um in part because people, there is a mood for change. And so people are more open to the idea of change. So right now, the level of uh, fear about what kind of outcome there could be in the election is not very high. Um, Should it be higher? I think that's a different question. But without it being much higher, I don't think there's much momentum at the public opinion level for electoral reform right now. You'll be happy to know that Chantel was nodding through most of your answer. Quite a bit. Quite yeah. a bit. Miss yeah. see that. Yeah. For those of you who do not have this on video, this is fake news. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, then when you nod, it means you're shaking your head, really. That was I'm just a regular to... head movement. There's always <laughs> a lot of head movement. I'm trying to um, keep track of uh, what good reason both Bruce and I found for this discussion. And beyond the fact that it's always an interesting discussion, I think we're all on the same page. I think um, we are. I think yeah, the liberals the need to be more scared talking about fear because Bruce talked about fear. The liberals espoused this concept briefly because they were in third place and suddenly they could see a future where they might not, as is the case in many provinces, be a force to contend with for government. Uh, But at this point, despite their concerns, despite what the polls tell them, they're not scared enough to go there. Yeah, I I also think that it was to some degree when they started pushing this in 2014, 2015, they were trying for second place. <laughs> they didn't realize they had a shot at first place. <laughs> and so it sounded good when you're going to be second and can't do anything about it. Anyway, that's that's just my opinion. Um, let's move on. Well, let me say one thing about first past the post, because, you know, you're quite right. I mean, you just look at the stats in the last two elections. Uh, the winning party... Uh, government of Canada for the last five years 
attracted through two elections, basically one out of three votes, right? That's all they got. Yep. And yet they're, mm-hmm. they're the government. So that that's what, you know, drives election reform or electoral reform people crazy. All right. Uh, neither, uh, not one of the three of us is a security and intelligence expert. However, we're going to, we're just going to talk about this for a moment because I, I found this, you know, we, we know the Foreign Interference Commission of Inquiry has started this week. But at the same time, Global News came out with a their own report yesterday after a, an access to information. So this document is real. It's not a leak. It it was it was released basically by the government through ATIP, access to information. And the headline is Foreign Interference Networks Deeply Embedded in Canadian Politics. And they're not talking about just the government. They're talking about right across the board, on all levels of government, federal, provincial, municipal. It's a pretty scary report, and it makes you... Well, it makes you ask two questions. So the question I sort of ask when I look at it is, you know, are we are we kind of the patsies out there in the Western world that you know the, we could, we're riddled with foreign interference, or is this the name of the game these days in the international intelligence and security and spying and all that? Um, is, is that just what the the landscape of that looks like? I don't know. Bruce, have you got uh, thoughts on this when you look at this report? Well, Peter, you, you said that I wasn't a security or intelligence expert, but of course, if I was, I wouldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. Um, <laughs> but let's just go with your assertion. Zero, zero, seven to the rescue. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> License right. the kill. Yeah, right. That's right. That's why he travels so much, you know. Shaken. Exactly. Exactly. Shaken, Shaken not stirred. Look, I don't think that we should be uh, naive about uh, this. I'm glad that this report came out. Um, I'm glad that there's a uh, an inquiry into uh, foreign interference. I think this is a really important conversation for the country to have. I don't think that we should assume for a moment that Canada has somehow been, uh, you know, stands alone as a country that faces this particular risk. It's a little bit like somebody was telling me the other day that you know, all of the investigations into unidentified flying objects in the United States that are meant to understand if if aliens are kind of visiting Earth, it, it appears that the only place that aliens wanted to come was certain parts of the United States and not, not anywhere else in the world. I don't, I think there's a tendency to get I th- wrapped I up. I think they're the already there. I think they're already there when you, when, okay, when you look James at the way Bond things are unfolding. It seems really unlikely to me that uh, aliens would only be interested in one part of the planet. And it also seems extremely unlikely to me that foreign interference of the sort described in that document is only happening in Canada. I think it's happening in lots of places. I think that um, some of it is it gets exaggerated. Um, You know, the role that a diaspora play um, and how they connect to an agenda of their country of origin, uh, that can be exaggerated sometimes in terms of, is it a, some sort of a deliberate um, act of foreign interference on the part of um, uh, another government? But I don't, you know, I don't want to suggest in saying that, that there isn't a problem. There is a problem. There's a problem with foreign interference. There's a huge problem that's uh, growing uh, almost by the day in terms of artificial intelligence and its role in misinformation and disinformation. And you've got the combination of um, the ability to use um, the internet and artificial information, artificial intelligence and um, uh, malevolence uh, by foreign state actors. Um, presents a a bigger challenge to our democracy and to other democracies than has ever existed before. And so it's a good thing that um, that there's going to be more exposure to it. And it's really, really hard to figure out exactly what to do to stop it. Chantal? So you talk about patsies. Well, if we are, we are really in a good company. We're not alone in that room. Uh, it's been documented uh, that uh, foreign state uh, actors played a role in pushing Brexit in the UK uh, and achieved an outcome that now a majority of voters, if I believe the polls, uh, find uh, regrettable 
uh, it has not turned out at all as, as some of the legends that were put forward to sustain it uh, uh, at the time would have suggested. Just this week, it was also suggested that uh, Russia in particular, but not exclusively, had played a role in uh, funding or pushing the Catalonia independence movement in Spain. Um, I am sure that the, the, the Catalonian independence movement is for the most part propelled by uh, Catalonia's sense that it wants independence and its history. I have um, family by association in Catalonia. I have no reason to doubt that, but I also have reason to uh, accept the notion that uh, there are state agents, foreign state agents, that might find it uh, in their interest to have one of the major countries in the EU blown apart uh, by uh, the secession of its richest or one of its richest provinces. You look at the uh, the narrative that is getting built in the United States uh, against helping Ukraine in its current war, and no one has any doubt that there are foreign agents in play also there uh, kind of encouraging. The thing with foreign interference is that it's this. these are not agents or processes that suddenly come to push a new idea. They feed on something and they nourish it and they allow it to grow uh, from where it is and they work from opportunity. So I don't think we are immune to those kinds of, uh, of, of uh, influences. Like Bruce, I'm not an expert uh, and I understand that governments would find it really hard, especially in societies that prize liberty of expression, liberty of association, freedom to 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 promote ideas. Uh, how you get to this particular uh, phenomenon in an effective way is, I think, something that all democracies at this point are struggling with. Okay. All right. Well, we solved that one then. Clearly. I did find Justice Hogg is uh, leaving on holidays. Uh, we've just written the report. That's right. right. Uh, they don't need any more hearings. I did say, notice something this morning, though. Um, there was in the Globe, which uh, it puzzled me in a way. Part of the government's, the Trudeau government's reaction to these stories about election interference, foreign, foreign, uh, foreign interference in, in politics in Canada was to establish a new cabinet committee that just focused on this this particular issue. And the Globe has a piece today saying, okay, that was that committee was formed, I think, in June. And the implication in the article is it's only met four times since. And I'm thinking, well, four times over six months. For <laughs> I can think of cabinet committees that don't meet that often. But is that does that show a lack of concern about this issue, or or is that criticism? I, would, I wouldn't necessarily think that. I mean, you know, when we think about cabinet committees meeting, um, I guess the question is, well, what do they do when they meet? Um, they don't meet and share their own stories about you know uh, foreign interference. They meet to review documents and, and information that has been prepared and assembled, and it's a very structured conversation usually i mean it, it can be free-flowing but I'm, by structured i mean there's an agenda there are documents for them to have read before they get to the cabinet meeting sometimes there's a presentation at the cabinet meeting um and then there's a process by which their views are sought and there's a, a bit of discussion but um to say that to to imagine that there need to be more meetings you'd have to you'd have to have some sense that there wasn't enough conversation or uh, there was more material that they should be exposed to that they didn't get exposed to. And I don't know that we would know that. I think that uh, I'm glad there is a, a cabinet committee. I think there should be a multi-party approach to this. Uh, I, I worried that the last time we had an election, there wasn't. And this time it doesn't look like there's going to be um, one of the bad things that can happen with a file like this, an issue like this is that it becomes uh, a victim of uh, partisan activity domestically, and so that people don't really know what the, the truth is. They only know what they're hearing from a one party or the other, which is which can be tainted by their own the party's own interests. It is in the liberals' interest, for example, 
to continue to draw attention to the fact that, um, according to the evidence in the document that you referenced, Peter, that uh, that China was involved in working against the interests of some conservative candidates, even if it's not, uh, a, you know, in, in their partisan interests to raise this, it's in the country's interest for it to be discussed. So I don't know the number of meetings, whether that uh, says anything to me. I, I'm, I'm glad that those meetings are happening. I think there should be more of them. Any thought on more, the Chantel? Discussions. We, any thought on the Chantel before we move on? I'm mostly on the same page as uh, Bruce. It's not the only committee where elected or or members of parliament actually meet to talk about national security. There is also a committee uh, that includes senators and people from uh, all parties. So to to present this as a sign that the government is asleep at the switch, four meetings that's over the course of uh, six months that include Christmas and the summer break and a cabinet shuffle, I don't find that particularly shocking or a sign of much of anything. Okay. Well, with that, we're going to take our first break. And when we come back, we're, there, there were interesting things that happened in three provinces this week. Um, and I want to kind of divide that up and get a get a sense from you as to how we should be looking at, uh, at these. But uh, first of all, we take this break. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. You're listening to a Good Talk on SiriusXM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our uh, YouTube version. However, you're, uh, you're taking this in. We're glad you're with us. Okay, Chantel and Bruce, um, we're going to divide this up in terms of, of provinces because things happen. There was something that happened in Alberta, something that happened in Ontario, something that happened in Quebec that I'd like uh, your thoughts on. Alberta ends up following, uh, I guess, Saskatchewan and New Brunswick uh, in the way it's looking at certain uh, transgender issues in their schools. They're not all exactly the same, but they're similar. Uh, And they are uh, receiving a lot of criticism uh, from uh, different areas. Uh, Federal minister um, uh, quite critical of the Alberta decision on this. Uh, some transgender uh, advocates are saying communities are terrified as a result of this. Um, Bruce, why don't you start us on this? What uh, What do you think? Well, it's hard not to look at uh, what Daniel Smith has done in this area and ask the question, what is she trying to solve for here? Is she really trying to prevent um, harm to children? Um, It doesn't really look like that to me. It looks more as though it's um, an effort that a government takes if it wants to, um, to, uh, to garner support from a part of society that has a particular issue with um, the LGBTQ community or, uh, the trans community. And so in that sense, r- relating it to what's happened in other jurisdictions um, makes sense to me, Peter. I think it, it does feel as though there is a part of society that has some legitimate concerns about um, the way gender uh, works these days. Uh, but I don't think that's what this uh, set of initiatives was what what was a little bit different about Danielle Smith and the way that she uh, brought her ideas to the fore is that she she created a video which made it sound as though she was being quite sensitive to uh, the counter argument uh, to what she was doing. Uh, but other than that, it still looks to me more like the kind of thing that will put more young people in har- in harm's way um, than will help them. And so I tend to be with those people who say um, this is somewhat cynical, this is dangerous, um, and uh, and hopefully it won't be something that is repeated elsewhere. And, and I'm sure there's going to be a vigorous uh, public debate and a political fight about it, and I think there should be. Chantal? Parental rights are are a fact, uh, and you do want, as a parent, to know what your kids are up to, and hopefully they'll tell you about it. 
But what if you're a parent that doesn't really want to hear anything uh, that offends your sense of what your child should be? Uh, we don't need to be writing fairy tales here. There was a time when kids who were gay in some families would never tell their parents for fear of reprisals or conversion therapy. We're going to make you better. This is a sickness. What if those kids had not been able to confide in guidance teachers or others? Where would that have led them? We live in a different era on that score, or we like to believe that we do, but we're basically saying if you're a child, a 14-year-old, you're struggling with your sexual identity, your gender. Um, there is no way that you're going to be able to confide in adults that you see on a daily basis uh, without fear that they will go to your parents with this. Let me turn the clock even further back than a gay child. There was a time when if you were 16, you believed that maybe you were pregnant or you wanted to get on the pill, you would have to find a doctor that would see you without a parent. Because if you saw a doctor with a parent, you would not be telling that doctor what you wanted from that doctor. So this is this is real. It's happened. Uh, and at this point, what I find, strangely enough, what I find most pervasive about the Alberta example is that in, by the same token, the government of Alberta is telling schools that it wants to veto their sexual education programs and make them optional. You're not opting out, you need to opt in. And I'm thinking, so we are going to raise a generation of kids who will be totally free not to be exposed to anything other than their parents' prejudices uh, and will grow up to be adults uh, perpetuating what in some cases will be totally misguided views about uh, LGBTQ uh, community members and all this with the sanction of the government that will, by the same token, I can't wait to see how those cabinet meetings about what's on the curriculum for sexual education in high schools in Alberta. Wisely enough, Pierre Poilievre has instructed his MPs to steer well clear of this conversation in Alberta, and I think it's the wise thing to do. I also believe that within his own caucus, there are people who are as uncomfortable with these moves as the Liberals MP, the Liberal MPs or NDP MPs who have been speaking about it openly. But I'm curious to see what happens once these are tested in an election. And that's going to happen this year since New Brunswick and uh, Saskatchewan are going to the polls. And in New Brunswick's case in particular, the issue has been used as a wedge, wedge issue by the Conservative government. Uh, and will they be rewarded for this approach? Uh, will they be sanctioned? Will it have no play in the election campaign? This is all things we will see this year. And I believe that those outcomes will drive the federal conversation politically on this. And do you think it will become a part of the federal conversation if we're in an election in another year or 18 months? And I, you know, I know education is a provincial issue. We all know that. Um, but it seems to me that it's going to be hard for any of those leaders to duck this issue when challenged on it, including Polyev. I understand why he's doing what he's doing now. But when it gets around to the uh, the actual campaign, I don't know how. I think that's right, Peter. I, I, I do think that um, we are headed for a discussion about what is Canadian conservative? What does that mean? Uh, what does it mean on issues like this? Uh, how does it square to um, to support this kind of parental rights and encroachment on um, what people can teach? How does that square with um, the idea of freedom being the freest, freest country in the world. I think those are all legitimate questions for uh, the other parties other than the conservatives to challenge the federal conservatives on. And I hope they do. And I say that in part because um, what the Republican Party has become uh, in the United States is a uh, is a cautionary tale, I think, for for Canada. Um, it, it isn't the case that most Albertans uh, are clamoring for this kind of initiative. It is a small part of the population that feels highly motivated by an issue like this, um, probably 
highly motivated uh, on the abortion issue as well. And the question becomes, are the conservative parties that are successful in, in attracting a kind of a bigger tent of voters, is their policy agenda going to be overly influenced by uh, the pressures that they feel from this segment of what is the conservative movement in Canada, as has been the case uh, in the United States? So I think it's a very legitimate discussion. Uh, but in saying that, I, I don't want to minimize what Chantal was saying as, as the real issue here, which is that um, young people will be put um in situations of jeopardy by this. This can feel sometimes to political uh, strategists as though it's a clever play and the way that it's described is is also clever because it's made to sound just sensible and and somewhat innocuous. Um, but it's, it's, it's designed to please a certain segment of the political populace. Um, but without as much regard as needs to be given to the to the risk that it puts people at. All right. Um, we're going to move on uh, into, um, well, into Ontario, where it's been interesting, you know, um, Doug Ford has kept, you know, relatively quiet since the Greenbelt thing blew up in his face and he had to do a, a flip-flop on uh, his position there. And, there, you know, there's all kinds of investigations and things going on. Um but he's been relatively quiet. But in the last uh, week or so, there's been a sense that some of his MPPs, the provincial members, are thinking, yeah, it's starting to smell around here. Maybe it's time to get out. And look where it doesn't smell. It doesn't smell on the federal conservative side. They look like they're about to win a big majority government. Maybe I should be running there instead of staying in, on the provincial scene. Is that... Um, is that real? Is that um, happening? What do either of you have to say about that? Chantal? Well, for sure, uh, there, is, there have been zero indications, on the contrary, that uh, Premier Ford and Pierre Poilievre are best pals, or that they they move in sync. On the contrary, I think since Pierre Poilievre has become a leader, I can't remember a time when he was standing uh, side by side with Doug Ford, but I can remember, and I don't even have a visual memory, but I can remember images of Premier Ford alongside Dominique Leblanc and Christian Freeland and Justin Trudeau, usually looking happy, even if they were not always smoking cigars together. So, uh, and and there, they the premier did enforce a no help in federal by-elections uh, rule on his caucus uh, when those first by-elections in Ontario federally came around uh, under Poilievre's watch, and vice versa. So there is not a lot of, um, of of friendship to be felt here or love. And at the same time, it's clear that there is not a no poaching rule. And that is a problem, obviously, for the premier, because he lost a cabinet minister uh, just last week who will be running for Pierre Poilievre. Uh, he stands to lose others. And what that means is that he's going to have to hold by-elections. Uh, and by-elections, when you're in government and you're less popular than you used to be, which is the case in Ontario, can mean that you're going to take a hit and slowly but surely you lose your moral capital over your own caucus because you keep losing those battles. Um, so I, I think there is concern in Ford's office, but I also think that the, at this point, the channels of communication between the most um, influential conservative premier in the country, which is the Premier of Ontario, by definition and size, and the leader of the opposition who is leading in the polls federally, does not vote for a very harmonious relationship. I think uh, these days I look at this from the distance of Montreal, it seems to me that the, Mr. Ford has more time for Olivia Child, the mayor of Toronto, and a new Democrat than he has for Pierre Poilievre. Bruce. I think the... Uh... I think the Ford government is, is uh, I wouldn't say that they're in a lot of trouble, but I would say that the uh, the bloom is off somewhat. I think that um, people who pay a lot of attention to provincial politics, which isn't everybody, um, they have grown more uh, frustrated with some of the choices that the government, the Ford government has made, some of the questions about ethics around um, uh 
you know, the land uh, situation, the development uh, issues around the green belt. Also, um, you know, the more recent questions about moving this uh, service Ontario uh, into Staples and doing it on, on, on the hop, basically saying that it had to be done on a sole source basis without, uh, because there wasn't enough time to do it. Otherwise doesn't make sense. And so there is a bit of a, I don't know, a stink, but a smell. Uh, I don't think that that's probably what's driving people to consider uh, entering in, into federal politics. I think it's always been the case that for ambitious provincial politicians who don't see themselves becoming premier one day, uh, it's tempting to see a wave forming uh, that could elect you to the House of Commons and to imagine that you'd have a situation where you could be in the federal cabinet. I think that's what's going on. Um but I don't think Ford is in deep, deep trouble right now. I think he could be by the time of the next election. Um, that remains to be seen. I do think instead that you, what you've got is politicians looking at the federal situation and the conservative prospects and saying, maybe I should be part of that um, that momentum. And that wouldn't have been the case a couple of years ago. It wasn't very long ago that, that you know, observers would have said, well, uh, Maybe Pierre Polyev will be the leader of the Conservatives, but the Conservatives will wish that they had Doug Ford as leader. And maybe Doug Ford will on one day be the federal Conservative leader. You don't hear that anymore, um, either parts of it. You hear people in the Conservative movement saying Pierre Polyev is doing a good job leading the party and, and positioning it for victory. And, and nobody's really talking about Doug Ford as a potential future prime minister. The um, you're you're right about. I mean, maybe in some difficulty right now, but he's not in trouble. I mean, there was another poll just in the last week that showed them ten, twelve points up on the um, on the opposition. Now, the Liberals have a new leader in Ontario. They got a long way to come back. Former mayor of uh, uh, Mississauga, Bonnie Crombie. Um, it was interesting. The other night there was a 80th birthday party. Uh, by his friends from a variety of different places for David Peterson, the former Ontario Premier. And there was uh, the room full of, uh, you know, conservatives and liberals. Uh, he was liberal. He still is a liberal. Uh, business leaders, et cetera, et cetera. No Doug Ford, but Bonnie Crombie was there, and she was working the room. And she has the advantage of not having, not having a seat in the provincial legislature, so she's working the province, trying to to close that gap. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it goes, but uh, Ford is still a powerful for, uh, you know, force in this province, especially in the greater uh, Toronto area. Um, okay, uh, one last provincial stop, and Chantelle, you can handle this one. Uh, you've warned us uh, in the last month that Legault was in trouble, when a, a year ago, nobody would have ever predicted that. Uh, he seemed to be gliding to, uh, you know, in his political career and with a re-election at whatever time, uh, more than likely. But right now, he's he's in deep doo-doo. Um, yes, that's one way of putting it, a bit of a, the kindergarten way. Uh, <laughs> he is set in such deep She's doo-doo so that he, he used the word that you didn't want to use. In a, a news conference this week, uh, in yeah, the English side of his news conference, he finished an answer with this doo-doo word that your mother taught you to avoid. <laughs> to much amusement, it's been repeated a lot in French because we, you know, when it's not a bad word in your first language, you are totally insensitive and immune to it, which is why Mr. Legault used it, uh, because... Uh, like other English swear words, they, they they are kind of not resonating when you use them in, in French. But um, I polled this week more seriously. The National Assembly came back this week. The premier uh, held a caucus as these things happened last week and told the uh, Quebec that the, the government would be more disciplined, that it would stick to its priorities, understand that more disciplined meant even back then, that the premier will, would not be all over the map surprising Quebecers with things that seem like rabbits, often dead ones that he pulls out of a hat. Well, two things happened when the National Assembly came back. The inevitable one was a poll. Of course, there will be a poll to two polls. Both polls uh, showed that the Parti, the Parti Québécois has now a solid, solid lead 
on the CAQ and voting intentions. So solid that the, the people who do see projections looked at what would happen if there was an election tomorrow based on those numbers. These are all projections. This is just for fun, except for Mr. Lugo. It showed that the CAC would have a hard time getting eight to 10 people reelected to a majority Parti Québécois government. So this is you know, par for the course. We've seen those polls since last uh, fall. At the same time, stories started breaking uh, that mayors were uh, told by some of the CAQ members that uh, if they wanted to advance their files, maybe they should show up at a fundraiser where a minister was in their riding. Let's be serious here. Um, political donations in Quebec are limited to $100 a head, so you're not going to be buying very much with $100 and certainly not a minister. But there was a pattern. And the fact that the pattern emerged is because mayors and others feel the government is vulnerable, and so they started leaking emails that show that this was happening. Mr. Legault held in his new discipline uh, incarnation was to hold one news conference this week, and he did on Thursday. And surprised everyone by uh, announcing that the CAQ will no longer fundraise from the public at all, and invited the opposition parties to do the same. Now, we'll no longer fundraise. That's almost an admission that the system was being abused, which is not necessarily the case, <clears throat> given the constraints on fin public financing. But the offer to opposition parties to do the same is really interesting. In Quebec, public financing is based on how well you do in an election. And so 85% of the funding of the CAC comes from public financing, 7 million. What do the opposition parties get? About 1 million and a half each. Well, it's not 7 million, four to one and a half each. Which party has been fundraising almost as well as the CAQ? The Parti Québécois. The CAQ brought in $800,000 last year. The PQ brought in 700,000. In clear, Mr. Legault is proposing that he keeps getting that edge in public financing while all of the others, and in particular, the Parti Québécois goes poor. Obviously, there's Today is Friday morning. The papers are full of analysis with the words panic, improvised, uh, misguided. Um, no one is using stupid, but on one panel, I was asked if it, if it was a rational decision, which is a heavy word to use. I, I went to impulsive, sounded like a, a better option. So things are not looking well. And I think some people are starting to think about what happens to the CAQ once François Legault retires. All right. Okay, we're going to take a final break. Come back with one more topic right after this. And welcome back. Uh, final segment of Good Talk for this week. Chantal and Bruce are here. Um, I'm almost hesitant to bring this up given my own uh, past, but I am kind of on the record about how I feel about the way things have been, uh, have been happening at the management end of the CBC. I, still, I have no problems with the journalism end, which I was from. I have enormous respect for the journalists at the CBC. I'd like to see a little more support from management uh, for the journalism, and I'm talking about the senior executive management. Um, but having said that, the president of the CBC, Catherine Tate, who uh, clearly stumbled in an interview with Adrian Arsenal, uh, I guess it's a couple of months ago now, when she uh, announced, Tate announced uh, that there were going to be uh, 800 or so jobs lost at the CBC to make up for a shortfall in revenues. Um, in that interview, Adrian asked her, well, obviously, you're not going to take bonuses at the executive uh, level anymore. And she fudged the answer. She basically, well, you know, we haven't got around to talking about that, which was unbelievable. 
same day she was laying off people or announcing there were going to be layoffs. Anyway, she got a second chance this week uh, at a parliamentary committee to answer the same question. And guess what? She still didn't answer it. She still fudged her answer. When the simplest thing would have been to say, whoever recommends whatever, I'm not taking a bonus. She didn't say that. She said, Ed, you know, it's not my decision. I, you know, I'll have to wait and see. Well, you know, I found that you know, pathetic uh, as an answer at a time when the corporation needs to be showing a different face than it's been showing lately. But maybe that's just me. I'm certainly biased on that subject, um, and I worry about the future of the CBC. But I, would, I wouldn't mind knowing how you two saw that. We have a couple of minutes left. Chantal. Oh, there's a group of people who thought she did just fine. Uh, they're called the Capoeiras Conservatives. Uh, there was even some uh, suggestions and jest on social media that maybe Miss Tate actually works as a covert agent. We were talking about spies, covert agent for the Conservative Party uh, and its quest to defund uh, and uh, make the CBC uh, disappear. It was a train wreck. I watched it. Train wreck from start to finish. Um, you are totally right that she could have easily have said there are performance bonuses built into some of the contracts of the people who work in management at the CBC. Uh, it's not that easy to say there will be no bonuses or whatever you want to call them this year. But in my case, I even if offered a bonus, I would certainly decline to accept it, which is totally her decision, as you know. Um, that did not happen. On the contrary, there was a point where she expressed hope that she would be considered for a bonus, really. Um, it also became clearer to, I think, both the government and to people on the outside uh, in her introductory presentation, she was she stated that the announcement that there would be job cuts was based on estimates that the CBC doesn't really know how many jobs it will need to cut, but that the announcement was made on the eve of the beginning of a round of labor negotiations with one of the CBC's largest unions. And clear, a strategy to set up the stage for a labor negotiation. What also became clear, not over the course of that very painful to watch uh, hour and a half, is that the government has no time uh, for mistake. Uh, and I say that because the next day, uh, the word from Heritage uh, and Treasury Board was that at no time had the CBC being told that it should expect a 3% cut in its funding. That did not happen, despite the, the suggestion by CBC management that all this is caused because we have a 3% cut to deal with in the next fiscal year not happening, or at least is not yet to happen. So my only question is, Miss um, Tate serves as pl at pleasure. She is on an extension of a mandate. What is the government waiting for? Uh, to either replace her on an interim basis or to appoint uh, someone with a proper full-time uh, term to uh, uh, run the CBC in what will become increasingly difficult times for both CBC and Radio-Canada. Uh, Bruce, a couple yeah, of Yeah, a big mystery as to why she got that extension. Uh, there were plenty of doubts about her capacity to run that organization before she got the extension. The government had plenty of time to find another candidate who would have been better suited to running the CBC than Catherine Tate. Um, and no surprise in a way that she's in this situation where um, she's got the microphone speaking on behalf of the organization and saying completely dumbfounding things. It was a total swing and a miss again. And, you know, shocking in the sense that in an organization like that, um, she would have done a rehearsal. There would have been meetings to talk about. Here's the question that you're going to get or the series of questions you're going to get. How are you going to answer that? And people would have counseled, um, you know, the way that they do, uh, you know, answer it this way. Don't answer it that way. Try to avoid saying this or that or the other thing. But really, at the end of the day, they either gave her bad advice or she ignored good advice. But what came out of her mouth on the central question of whether or not she should get a bonus was 
incomprehensibly stupid. This idea that she could get away with saying, well, I won't be the one who decides whether I get a bonus. Um, and the extension of that thought is that, yes, she would be the one that recommends to the board who should get bonuses, but the board will decide. It's it's almost it's either childishly naive to imagine that people would accept that on face as, a, oh, well, come to think of it, I guess she's right. It's not really up to her or it's just stupid. Um, and it's putting the reputation of the organization at risk, uh, making it a bit of a laughing stock in the political community. Um at a time when um, it is vulnerable. Uh, obviously, the criticism of the conservatives of the CBC is quite trenchant and the uh, and the risks of the organization are really quite significant politically. So it was a really bad day for the CBC and uh, uh, lots of reason for people who care about the CBC to be disappointed in Ms. Tate. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say anything else, but I, you know, it's a difficult time at the CBC. I feel particularly, um, you know, upset for staff at CBC, especially the younger ones who are all vulnerable to the layoffs that are about to come. Upwards of 800 uh, layoffs. And it's, you know, kind of last in, first out uh, situation, given the various contracts at the CBC. And you have a lot of young, talented people who the future of journalism is built on who are going to lose their jobs. And while that's happening, you have an executive who's saying what she's saying about bonuses. It just doesn't seem to make any sense to me. All right, we're going to uh, leave it at that. Uh, lots coming up in the in the week ahead, uh, starting with uh, the buzz, which comes out tomorrow, the uh, weekly newsletter. Uh, you can have it in your inbox at uh, by seven a.m. But you've got to subscribe. It's free, but you have to subscribe at the National Newswatch dot com. Uh, we'll have a new question of the week starting on Monday, and uh, we uh, are um, anxious to hear what you might have to say about that. So uh, have a good weekend, uh, both of you, Bruce and Chantel, and uh, we look forward to talking to you in uh, in a week's time. Uh, so that's it for this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you again on Monday. Mm-hmm.